You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have shown us the way of the kingdom, that what is down is actually up, and what we think is up is actually down. We pray that you would give us humility today, that we would, um, with a, just as we have just sung, that you would do what you need to do with us in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, even how we think about money and all of these things. We pray that you would help us become more and more like your son Jesus through his work on our behalf. We pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you everyone this evening. If I haven't met you yet, uh, there's several new faces that I haven't met, and I would love to meet you. Uh, My name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church. We are so glad that you are with us. We have been walking through the book of Luke. We are now in almost halfway done. Uh, The the, the chapters in this book are so long, and it takes a, a good way to get through here, but we are moving along, and I am so glad to be where we are. It is January 14th now, which means that one month from today, what happens? Uh, Well, it's Valentine's Day, but more importantly, uh, pitchers and catchers report to spring training to prepare for the beginning of a new baseball season. Uh, Marcy, my wife, is like, already, like, it just ended, like, two months ago, and I'm like, yeah, That's why it's the best, because baseball never ends. Uh, Well, in using an illustration I've used before, until about 30 years ago, the way that scouts, the way that executives and fans determined whether a player was good or not good, whether a player was worth paying a lot of money to or not, was predicated on a few things. Does that guy hit home runs? 
Does he have a ton of RBIs? Does he strike a lot of people out? In other words, does he look like a ball player? Well, perhaps you've read the book or seen the movie, but beginning with the Moneyball Oakland A's of the 1990s, smaller teams began focusing on other skills and values that weren't as flashy, but proved themselves to be just as valuable to the winning or losing of that baseball team. Now, 30 years, 20, 20, 20, 30 years later, most baseball front offices, and now spilled over into basically all other sports as well, these front offices are either run by Ivy League economics experts or they are heavily influenced by them. Here's the point, and not just an excuse to talk about baseball from the pulpit. As human beings, we are always drawn to what is immediately and just to our eyes visibly flashy. We wrongly value some people more than other people because of what we think they can offer, all the while truly ignoring what is, or ignoring what is truly valuable. And what you've heard, just heard Caleb read from Luke 14, Jesus completely turns the notion of value, what makes someone valuable, on its head, flips it upside down. We must continually reorient ourselves to Christ's principles for value and human value. Not, not just does he or she, that person, look valuable, does he look like a good ball player, but is there something that is less visible that reveals true value? As is often the case in Luke's gospel, this whole chapter is framed around dinner tables. Jesus is at a dinner party, and then he moves to a very pointed and incisive parable about another dinner party, about a future banquet. So we're going to ask ourselves, around the dinner table here, we're going to ask ourselves two questions of this text tonight. First, where is value found? And then, secondly, hopefully after we've answered that question, how do we value rightly? All right, so first of all, where is value found? Just as a heads up, the text that follows is almost, if you were here with us last Sunday and you were listening to Caleb read this, it is almost an identical repeat to what we did last week in chapter 13. Think about what we thought through last week in chapter 13 and what you just heard Caleb read. Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. The Pharisees get mad. Jesus rebukes them for treating their animals better than people. And then Jesus, last week and this week, will tell a parable about a master inviting guests into his house. Last week, we saw a master invite guests into a narrow, narrow door that eventually is closed to those who did not come in. This week will be a little different. While the framework of the text is very similar, Luke is making a nuanced, different point, while also showing a major similarity, that the rejection of Israel for those who, that God is rejecting Israel if those people in Israel are rejecting who God has sent to them, the Christ, the Messiah. And by repeating the same thing, I think that Luke wants us, the readers, to be like when, we, when, we, when you were listening to Caleb just read this text Maybe you were thinking, wait a minute, still? Like after everything that the Pharisees saw in chapter 13, they're still responding this way again? Luke is showing us that sin is blinding, that hard hearts are often difficult to soften. But Jesus here, let's get into it. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee banquet on the Sabbath day. And this immediately feels like a setup. Jesus is invited him, and Luke tells us that they are watching him closely. 
carefully. There's a man there, perhaps also invited by the Pharisees, who has dropsy, which is a, a swelling of soft tissue. There's lots of excess fluids that build up in your joints and under your skin. So your legs and your arms can really swell up. Often in these days, this was thought of as a curse from God because of personal unrighteousness. So here, likely in the eyes of the Pharisees, is an unrighteous man at this banquet. He has very visible problems, which is probably in their eyes evidence of God's displeasure with him. And again, just like last week, it's the Sabbath, the day that Israel was to rest from all labor, including from what the Pharisees think and believe they should, people should rest from healing. But Jesus sniffs the trap, and before any thing happens, Jesus, as he sees this man before the Pharisees say anything, before anything gets done, Jesus asks them, asks the lawyers and the Pharisees, hey, what should happen here? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And nobody wants to offer an answer. They're quiet. They're silent. And then straight away, like last week, Jesus heals him and says in verse 5, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Jesus is saying that we all naturally care for, we move toward, we help those whom we love. We move toward, we care for those that we deem to be valuable, no matter the circumstances. If your son, if your ox falls into a well, you don't just say, hello down there, so sorry, it's the Sabbath, I'll try again tomorrow, if you're still alive. No, we move towards our children. We move toward our oxen, or perhaps today's equivalent of taking care of a broken house, uh, a, a, a broken car, the things that we deem to be valuable if, it, if the circumstances are warranted. So Jesus has compassion in that moment for the sick, for the hurting. He loves them. He finds them to be valuable of both his attention and his time. Those whom the Pharisees assumed perhaps to be cursed by God. But in now looking around at this dinner party that Jesus is at, he's sent this man with dropsy away after healing him. He makes some observations, and then he gives some practical advice. And these days, if you were to have a party, you would likely be having a dinner party, just like this, this dinner party, and the table would be arranged in a U. Not like in the Leonardo da Vinci uh, Last Supper, where it's just a straight table, but a table that is a U, and the guest... The, the master or the, the, the dinner party host uh, would sit in the very middle, the center seat. And he would reserve on his right hand a seat for the person of most value, of the, the most regarded dinner guest, the, mo the, the guest with most honor. And Jesus says, don't assume that when you arrive at a dinner party that that right hand seat is reserved for you that you are the person with most honor. You may sit there and think pretty highly of yourself for like three or four minutes as the rest of the guests are arriving. You're visible to everyone. You're pretty happy thinking that everyone else in the room thinks that you must be pretty important if you're sitting in that seat. But then, while you're sitting there, while the other guests are arriving, someone more honorable than you might show up. Someone that the host thinks more highly of than you, and the host very publicly then asks you to move, to move down, to move down one seat, perhaps to move down seven or eight seats, depending on who else shows up. How humiliating. Your place of very temporary honor has now turned to shame. Rather, than, rather I would like you, the host says, 
to sit very far away from the seat of honor. And so Jesus is saying, show up early. Show up early to the party, not so that you can beat the honorable crowd and sit at the place of most honor for a few minutes, stealing the best seat, but get there early and steal the worst seat. Get there early so that you can sit down at the end of the table. Then later on in the party, the host will look down at the far end and say, hey, my man, why are you sitting so far down there? Why are you sitting at the end of the table? Move up closer to me. How great will it be, Jesus says, in that time, in that, in that party, very publicly in front of everyone, rather than being publicly shamed, to be publicly honored, brought further up rather than sent further away. The point of all this is that Jesus relates this practical advice to a spiritual reality in verse 11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Value is not found in what you think of yourself or what others think of you. Value is not found in what is temporarily recognized but then lost. Value is found in what the host of the party ultimately thinks of you, in what the host of the party recognizes, in what the host of the party honors, not what others do. It does not matter if the world thinks highly of you if God thinks lowly of you. And it does not matter if the world thinks lowly of you, if God thinks highly of you. Jesus is warning the Pharisees here. He's saying you might be in a place of high honor right now. Perhaps your whole life you go this place of honor where your town and your village thinks very highly of you. Your peers think highly of you. But it will not always be so. Or as Jesus asked in chapter 9, for what Does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses and forfeits himself? So what if you had the place of honor for a few minutes, if you've lost it all? But then Jesus turns his attention to not just if you are a party guest, but if you are the party host. He says, don't just invite people that might return the favor and invite you to one of their banquets. In these days, the way that you worked your way up the social ladder is by gift giving and invitations. This is the way you moved up. You give gifts to those who are socially above you. You invite those who are socially above you in the hopes that they will return, that they will reciprocate those gifts. They will reciprocate those invitations, pulling you up to their level. You invite those above you, and then you hope over the coming years that you get kind of dragged up to their social level. And then you keep moving up and keep moving up. And over the decades, wow, look here, you're at the top of society. What you would never do is point your attention downward. The lowly will also feel the need to repay. And then what will happen if you invite someone who is socially lower than you? They will invite you to their party and you have to go. That's terrible. Like, what will my neighbors think if I am not moving up, but I am moving down? Cicero, the Roman philosopher, taught that giving gifts to the poor reflected very poorly on the gift giver. How unwise would you have to be as a person to give gifts to someone who has clearly gotten themselves in that social situation in the first place? They can't repay you. Let them figure it out. A gift giver to the poor is unwise, Cicero says. A a gift giver to to the poor has no sense, has no prudence. Don't trust that person. That person is untrustworthy if he gives gifts or invites those who are socially lower than him. 
but the upside down kingdom of Jesus? Jesus says, invite people who could never repay you. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Jesus is confronting something that we have thought about many times together before, something innately and sinfully within us that is our tendency to treat people in exactly the same way that we treat any other commodity in our life. Why do you want to buy this car rather than that car? Why do you want to watch this movie rather than that movie? Why do you want to eat this rather than that? We pursue and value the things that we think will give us more. We pursue and choose and value the things that we think will give us more happiness, more respect, more accolades, more comfort, more pleasure, because this car is bigger, is faster, is a brand that people respect, because this movie makes me laugh harder and is perhaps less challenging. Perhaps this food just tastes better. Sometimes we might make a decision of choosing a different food because we want more health in this situation. Whereas last night, we want more just amazing chocolate flavor or something. None of these decisions are necessarily or inherently sinful. We just, as humans, always, and I mean always, make every single decision that we make every moment of the day, option A or option B, and whatever we decide, we always choose what we think is more satisfying. That certainly applies to if we will choose to honor God in this moment or choose sin. What do we believe in that moment is more satisfying? And because we regularly treat people no differently than we treat cars, movies, or snacks, we make decisions based on our personal satisfaction. As long as that person is a net benefit to us, as long as that person makes me laugh, makes me feel good about myself, helps me to get into better social circles, just makes life more enjoyable, then I'll keep hanging out with them. But the moment that that person becomes a net negative, they're awkward, the conversation can be difficult, they tend towards dragging me toward lower, lower social circles. They just generally make my life less enjoyable than I inherently, innately, just because of who I am as a human being, I'll do everything that I can to avoid, to exclude that person. We all do this. People are no different than commodities in our own hearts. We elevate ourselves to be the arbiter of what is valuable based on completely arbitrary standards that God couldn't care less about. When the pretty people deserve our attention, while less physically attractive don't. When we think the healthy or the rich or the smart bring us value. When in fact spending time with and honoring the sick, the poor, the socially marginalized might actually bring more value. Not to you socially now, but in your future one day the table hosts looking to the way that you have cared for people way down at the end of the table and say, hey, come sit next to me. What are you doing way down there? You didn't consider people or human interaction based on your own temporary social advancement, but because of how you have been loved, you love others? Because you consider the other's advancement to be more important than your own? All of that that didn't get honored then, but now is the time that you will be honored. Come sit with me. Now, all of this might sound to be sinfully and selfishly motivated, to care for the uncared for, for future honor. And it is selfishly motivated because those who are children of God ought to live more and more for the Father's pleasure. 
of just basking in the joy of God. Now, of course, even that can be twisted into exhausting and lifelong attempts to earn God's favor. We are hopelessly meritorious. In everything we do, we try, we try to accrue merit for ourselves. Our hearts naturally want to earn favor and acceptance, even in how we love others. And so we must be reminded constantly and ongoingly that it is finished. It has been finished upon the cross. What Jesus has done for us now frees us to be so that we might do and not the other way around. Not to do so that we might be. Remember though, throughout Luke, Jesus has been confronting the motives behind these actions of heart and hand alignment. That there is alignment here. That when the heart is healthy, when the tree is healthy, the fruit naturally follows. Luke will have plenty more to say in the coming weeks and months about the poor and the rich, something that we've already thought about quite a bit throughout Luke's gospel. But Jesus' point here in making all of this isn't merely for us to just start going to find those on the margins of society and invite them over to dinner. It might be that. And again, you can do all of that with self-serving motives. You can become very much like the Pharisees in how we care for the poor. Not in, their, not in becoming like them in their actions, but despising those who supposedly don't love God in all the ways that you obey him. I care more about the things that God cares about. Thank you, God, that I am not like those other people who are not as serious about how I obey God in the way that I should obey him. Nor should those on the margins of society read a passage like this and get angry at those on the higher rungs of the social ladder. The poor should not get angry at the rich, judgmentally thinking they aren't real Christians. They, they don't take the Bible as seriously as they should. Because here's the thing, just because some don't pursue and care for you in exactly the way that you'd want, you actually don't know the ways in which they might be caring for countless others. And in fact, if they, loving Jesus, were not doing these things to be known for their generosity, it should be that way, that they are not known for their generosity. And perhaps you have not seen or observed the countless ways that the rich are being generous and are caring. And what you have done in your heart is what Jesus is condemning in the rich, that you are using others for your own personal gain and elevation rather than using yourself for the benefit of others. You are using the rich to help drag you up rather than using yourself to drag others up. And so while it's true that Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, what? If you have love for one another, well, it's true that it shouldn't be that all Christians should make it our daily mission to relieve every instance of suffering in the world or even in your own city. Even Jesus did not make that his mission. He healed those in his midst, and he healed those who came to him in faith. He came, his mission, over and above all of that physical healing was to heal hearts, sick hearts, and to bring life. And yet, while all that's true, there are plenty of places in the Bible in which God's people must care for, even show radical generosity towards those outside of our walls. Jesus explains in John 9 that the blind man was absolutely not blind as a result of his own personal sin or the sin of his parents. 
He's just suffering. We saw that the parable of the Good Samaritan confronts many of our sensibilities of ignoring those or walking by those who are suffering. The Samaritan not only stops and cares for the beaten and the naked traveler, but he then completely changes his plans and personal finances to care for this man. Ethnic or religious differences must not be a barrier to the kind of sacrificial living that Jesus commends by asking the question, who is your neighbor? Well, every human that is made in the image of God. And which humans have been created in the image of God? All of them. And yet, the overwhelming point in Luke 14, as well as the passages to come about the rich and the poor, as we've already seen throughout Luke's gospel, especially in Luke chapter 1 through 4, is this, that while our culture makes plans, while we take control of our lives and we steer ourselves and our children toward maximal success, we are constantly steering ourselves and our children and potentially those within our spheres of influence to maximal success. The poor of the world live under no delusion that they, that we, are the masters of our own universe, the masters of our own fate. The poor and the marginalized, often more so than the wealthy and the so-called stable, are often better prepared to turn and to depend on the work and the provision of God, which is what Luke's point has been throughout this entire book. That we Americans ongoingly need challenges. We need reminders. We perhaps even need confrontation in our economic worldview that so deceptively whispers that the meaning of life is the accumulation of more stuff. This is what is constantly, constantly, constantly in our ears, that the meaning of life is more stuff. The meaning of life is the elimination of any possible insecurity or discomfort. The meaning of life is your promotion. And so where is value found? What is Jesus confronting here? Value is found in humility. In the humility that recognizes the generosity of God. In valuing what the Father values. Which is what? Not the biggest, not the strongest or the fastest or the flashiest, but the humble. Those who say, those who believe, those who live, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Like John the Baptist, ongoingly saying, believing, living, let me decrease so that you, Lord Jesus, might increase. That I'm a dry and fragile jar of clay and that's actually a good thing. Why? So that it is clear that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to me. Because I have no power in the first place. Oftentimes we Americans, we wealthy, we rich and healthy can just delude ourselves that we do have the kind of power that we don't actually have. Value is found in every human being created in God's image, each human being bearing and carrying inherent value and worth, each and every person on this planet who must know and understand their individual accountability before God, their need for a kind and generous Savior. Value ultimately We've already said that value is found in humility. Value is ultimately found in Christ, who is, avail- who is available to all kinds of people, 
the sick and the healthy, the poor and the rich, the so-called righteous and the unrighteous. So if value is found in Christ, who would willingly and generously reside in any human heart, any humble heart, any human who is made in the image of God, no matter their appearance, no matter their social status? If that is true, that value is found in humility, value is found in Christ, now how do we value rightly? That is, how do we more and more value what the Father values? How should we then live? The second question, how do we value rightly? Jesus says that we ought to be moving toward the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, but why? Is it just to be nice? Is it just to force ourselves to be kind to others when there is nothing to be returned to us? Well, not quite. I had Caleb stop reading at verse 14, so I'm going to pick it up here in verse 15, and we're going to read through the end of verse 24. Luke goes on, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. After Jesus told the Pharisees, if you are a party host, here's what you should do. You should invite the forgotten outsiders of the city. This one guy, we don't know who he is. He pipes up and he says in verse 15 to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, which is a really odd thing to say. But many commentators think that this guy was trying to test Jesus's theology. This guy is using a common proverb talking about this coming banquet of the Messiah when all things will be made, be made right. The banquet foretold in Isaiah 25. This guy, and perhaps those who are with this guy, were likely waiting for Jesus to reply with some kind of an expected response. Like they were expecting Jesus to say, ah, yes, and may we be among the righteous who sit at that table. Or, ah, yes, and may that day, the banquet of the Messiah, may, may that banquet come quickly. This person is clearly trying to say that the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind are outside of the love and care of God because Jesus, just look at the circumstances, God is not with him. But Jesus isn't playing that game. This guy has just put down a test. He's put down a scantron right in front of Jesus, his desk. But Jesus doesn't take out the number two pencil. He gets up and he starts like walking around and he just starts telling a story like he does. He doesn't even respond to the man. He just starts telling a story, a parable. And like we've thought about with parables, we should ask, 
Anytime Jesus tells a, t- a parable, we should ask of ourselves, what are the preconceived notions? What are the wrong beliefs that Jesus is trying to sneak past here? He's pointedly trying to enter or get his hearers to enter into the world of this parable so that they might what? So that they might realize what about themselves? So that they might, they might change what about their beliefs or their lives? Well, that those who will be invited to the future Isaiah 25 banquet of the Messiah will be those who appeared at first not to be invited, but those who not were initially invited will actually come. Now, just like today, when you're hosting a party, you'll determine how much food to get based on the number of guests that you will be expecting. And how do you know the number of guests you'll be expecting? The host of the party gets an initial round of RSVPs. And then after the host has made plans and preparation, uh, he sends out the servant to say, all right, now the party is ready. Come, everything is ready. But then we see three extraordinarily lame excuses. They're ridiculous excuses. The first guy in verse 18 says that I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Or I must go out to see if it is a good field. One commentator says, this is like a Westerner who calls his wife to tell her that he will be late for supper because he's just purchased a new house over the phone. And having signed the check, he now wants to drive across town to look at it. Such an excuse is absurd because homebuyers inspect property with great care before considering a purchase. Just think about if you've ever bought a house, all of the weeks and months of inspections and preparations that go into that before you sign anything. It's like he's just scrambling to make an excuse, and then he doesn't even give a good one. He's basically saying, oh man, yeah, I wish I could be there, but I need to wash my hair or something. Everyone knows when he gives this lame excuse that he's bought a field, and now he can't come to the party because he needs to go check on it to inspect it to see if it's a good field. Everyone knows that he's just given some lame excuse. He actually just doesn't want to come. Everyone knows it. Or verse 19. I bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Same thing. You don't buy oxen without having first made careful examination. I bought five tractors, but I can't come to the party that I've RSVP'd to because I now need to go see if they actually work. Or verse 20, I've married a wife, and therefore cannot come. Now maybe giving this guy the biggest benefit of the doubt Maybe he's saying that since women likely aren't coming to this party, I need to go home and stay with her rather than come to your party, something that we'll think more about next week in loving Jesus more than even family. But the servant comes and he tells the master all of the excuses of the invited guests. And what is the response of the host, of the master? Verse 21, it's anger anger at those who should come, but they actually don't desire the master or his banquet. They RSVP'd. They said, yes, we're in, and then gave lame excuses that everyone knows is just revealing they have no concern for him. They don't respect him. They don't love him. They don't want to be with him. But what does his anger do? The abundance of this dinner party is not going to be wasted because the RSVP'd guests bailed on and rejected the host. Rejection turns into grace in welcoming the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. 
And so the servants go out and they bring the outcasts. And what do we find now? There's still room at the party. So the master tells the servants to go out to the highways and the hedges, go out to the foreigners of the city and tell them to come. Or in verse 23, to compel them. They won't believe you that they have been invited to the party of like one of the most respected men in town. They will not believe that this invitation is real. So grab their hand and convince them. Jesus is explaining what the prophets have always told, especially in places like Isaiah 56, where the outcasts, where the eunuchs, where the Gentiles are brought in. The gospel is moving out to those who never believed that they would be invited in the first place. God's people are now not just the ethnic people of Israel, but are including anyone who would come to the party. As our profession of faith this evening, we used Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, where we talked about that God is showing favor to the descendants of Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham according to Luke's theology? According to what we see in the Gospel of Luke and in the part two of the book of Acts, it is those who share not Abraham's DNA, but share his faith. Those are the sons and daughters of Abraham. What unites the people of God through time and culture is not shared language, is not shared skin color, not shared cultural preferences or socioeconomic levels, but is a shared faith in Christ. His blood shed for people who couldn't be more different that now makes them into one family that now makes them closer than even DNA. But this text should come as a warning to, maybe for others of us, though we are more like the kinds of folks who are scrambling to find excuses. It's really easy for us to think of ourselves as better and above those dumb Pharisees of Jesus' day, making up rules and trying to act all holy and stuff. But then when the Lord of the party sends an invitation to you to come, when Jesus is saying and inviting you to come, to eat with me, to be with me, rest in my presence, and then follow me. And then we respond with, nah, I'm I'm good. All kinds of excuses that I'm really busy right now. This is an especially busy season of life. Or maybe I'll get around to that later. Or even honorable sounding excuses like I'm trying to take care of my job or I'm trying to take care of my family. Yeah, making my life all about Jesus at this moment in time would really stress me out, would stress out my spouse, would stress out my kids, would stress out my mother-in-law. It would slow down my school, my job advancement. Well, again, next week we'll see Jesus say that if you don't love him more than your family, your stuff, even your own life, you cannot be his disciple. But being Jesus' disciple is actually the entire point. Is the point of the Christian life, is the point of every life whom he has created. It is the point of your life to walk with him and to become like him, to love what he loves and to love those whom he loves. Being the people of God, as Jesus is trying to confront here, is not just living an easy, carefree life, however you'd like, and then sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of the life that you've always wanted. No, following Jesus can often be difficult, can often be costly, but it is the way to the most satisfying meal of eternity. 
even if not fully felt and enjoyed in this life. So your excuses are lame. Our excuses to not make Jesus the very center of our entire life, of our entire universe, that we orbit around him and he does not orbit around us, they're meaningless. And just as we can see and everyone at the party could see that these excuses are lame, they're ridiculous, we know that this person just actually, it's not that he has reasonable excuses, it's just that he doesn't want to come, it's just that he doesn't want to be with the masters, or the master, the master himself can see our excuses for what they are as well. We just actually don't want him. I don't want to come. I don't want you. My life is more important. What I value is more important. And so how do we value rightly? How do we begin to love the things that God loves? How do we live like Jesus lives? By becoming like him. By becoming his disciple. That overwhelmingly, Jesus invites his people into being like him rather than doing like him. Doing is important. The things that we do with our lives matter. But not if we get the motive and the identity wrong. Who are you? Are you your own? Or can you say that I have been bought with a price? And I am now no longer my own, but I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He does this. He invites this of all kinds of people. He invites all kinds of people to become his, to become like him, to be saved like him, or to be saved by him, to be forgiven through him, to be given his life. And he establishes a new banquet and a new way of coming to the table. He establishes new table etiquette. He establishes new table manners in his heavenly kingdom. And so here, as we gather around the table of the king, all of us come equally. We don't eat more or less based on our W-2s or what we think that we might be able to return to God. We don't eat more or less if we have had a particularly good or holy week. But we all come based on what? The holiness, the work, the riches of Christ. It is not your holiness that allows you to come to the table, but it is the holiness of Jesus that says, be united to me. I've done it for you. It was finished upon the cross. Your sin is no more. Your holiness is now yours because of me. We don't drink to our health or to our jobs or to our successes or promotions, but we, we drink to the success and to the glory of Christ. It is for all who would come in humility and proclaim the kingdom of Christ and not our own. His life for ours. His death for ours. For all who would come, we don't buy the best seats up front. We don't auction off the best pieces of bread. As one body, diverse and different in many ways, we share in one loaf. We take from the same bread. Feasting on the Lord Jesus. And yet, here at Christchurch anyway, the bread that we take is often meager. 
The cup that we drink from is meager. This bread and this drink, it is pilgrim food. It is a morsel on the way from one Sunday to the next, sustaining us along the road, but not intended as the destination. Jesus himself, the Last Supper, told his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You guys, Jesus is the risen king and he is waiting for us. He awaits his people. In this meal of the king, one pastor says, this moment, this moment, every Sunday when we come to this meal together, the table of the king, this moment brings the future banquet closest to the present. In this moment, hope is not just something I fight for or feel, but hope is something that I taste. This meal is a a dress rehearsal for the future marriage supper in which there is no poor, no rich. There is no more sickness. There is no more failure, no more sin or selfishness or division. There is no more death, but only life. For those who have nothing in this life, that they might be filled with the life and the righteousness of Christ. Or as he said in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted, exalted with Christ to the right hand of the Father. It is this Jesus who with a physical nail-pierced hand welcomes his people into the presence of God. This is good news. It is good news to the humble, to those who would receive it and believe it. It is a warning to those who would reject it. It is a warning to the proud. Is this the good news, the gospel that you are basing not just the next five minutes on, but your whole life, that your life makes zero sense apart from an empty tomb, that Jesus is alive and therefore you are alive with him? I pray that it would be so. I pray that more and more, week by week, year by year, decade by decade together, we might experience this abundant life that Jesus offers. Maybe not with physical things. Maybe not with social promotion. Maybe with the loss of things. Maybe with the the coming of social demotion. But it is worth it because he is worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you that you welcome the humble. This is a good thing, that we do not have to build our resume to make it acceptable enough for acceptance to you, but that you welcome the weak, you welcome the poor, you welcome those with empty resumes, that we base our whole life, our whole hope, our whole existence on the resume of our Lord Jesus, who has lived for us who has died for us, who has been risen, who has been raised to new life for us, who has loved you as we ought, who has given of his whole life, he has considered the needs of others to be more significant than his own, like we should have, like we should do, and yet we fail. And yet, just as we've sung, just as we have prayed, just as we have confessed and considered this evening, when I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. It is not our work, but yours, Lord Jesus. We pray that in believing these things that you might transform us, that by being we might do, that by having our whole hearts, you might have our whole mind, 
our whole strength, our whole life in all that we are for your glory, for the clarity of the gospel to our unbelieving neighbors, and for our own increasing joy, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.